Here we are. Um, this is our second part in our five-part series looking at the book of James. This series is called Front Row Seat because we're taking a look at a part of Scripture that was written through the Holy Spirit by Jesus' younger brother, Jacob. Um, the translators of the Scripture into English gave him the name James, but in every other language he would be called Jacob. Um, we are taking a look at um, some of the words that James decided to share, not only with the group of people right with him, but with all of the Jewish congregations that have begun to form. Um, this was written about 15 years after Jesus died. And, uh, the, you know, James is seeing a lot of things going on in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christ, that he wants to bring some clarification that if you're going to live and trust Jesus, it's going to look like this. And there's probably been some teaching that's popped up that's not biblical, um, that wasn't uh, in line with Jesus's life. And so we love the way James puts a lot of things here. Really um, words that causes a believer to say, this is where my faith um, you know, is true. This is where it's right. Um, this is where the rubber meets the road kind of living um, for Christ. And so last week we talked about, you know, James chapter one really is kind of a preview of all that's coming. Um, it's a preview chapter to more details coming in chapters two through five. And in there he talked about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and really with this three-part, here's what it means to be a Christian, bridle your tongue, um, visit orphans and widows in their distress, and then to keep yourself from being spotted by the world or tainted by the world. Um, and so we're going to be taking a look at James chapter 2. There's so much good stuff. We're going to read, and, and really we're going to have two observations today, one from the first half, of James 2 and one from the second half. And really the first observation that we're going to look at in these first 13 verses is favoritism is a bigger thing than you probably think. Favoritism is probably a bigger thing than you think. Um, we live in a world of preferences, don't we? Um, it, it's actually kind of a buzzword these days, preferences. It's almost like something that you can't even argue with. Um, people, if you say, well, it's my preference, it's like, I can't touch that because it's your preference. It's my preference to um, you know, do this or to do that or to be this or to be that or to be identified as this or identified as that um, to the point where you really can't even argue with someone's preferences. It's like it's become so elevated in importance that you don't even have a leg to stand on if someone uses that word. Um, we claim that differences are celebrated. Um, that's something that we claim in our culture to be uh, something to be celebrated. Um, but the reality is, is more than likely most of us 
avoid too many differences in our lives. We are gravitated, um, we are drawn to people who are more like us than are different from us. James 2 addresses this human quality and calls it out in these fledgling churches, these new churches that are calling themselves Christ-like, and he's calling out this favoritism thing that happens so naturally in us. Um, And I want for us to just let the words speak for themselves here for a moment. James chapter 2 verse 1 says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you are really... If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For every, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right. So in these first 13 verses here, we find uh, James calling out the sin of favoritism in the church. Um, People operating in their faith, operating in their Christian faith, maybe even in their gatherings or their assemblies um, together. And they are treating those who come in with some sort of higher standing in society with greater honor, greater receptivity than with those who come in with a lower standard um, or maybe a lower level in society. Um, The poor, as it's called. Here's the thing. Favoritism is a natural bent in every single one of us. We all operate with favoritism constantly inside of our minds and our hearts. We do life um, very naturally favoring that which is comfortable, easy, um, most similar to where we are. We favor the comfort zone. That's the way we do life. And it's always in operation. And this is not an indictment against the sinfulness in us because favoritism is like this natural working in us. We look for that which is favorable, that which is most comfortable. 
we're, we're kind of gauging the, the, we, the things that we'll do, the things we'll say yes to, the people we will hang out with. Um, all of that comes pretty naturally um, through this filter of favoritism. So because this is always in operation, we find here in the scripture, James calling us out of that filter, always being the one that um, is the one that gets the, the decision made through. Basically, because favoritism and us making quick decisions as to what's the most comfortable and favorable path for us to take, um, because that's always at work, in order to ever go against that natural work in our lives, it's going to take some doing. It's, and it's really the way of Christ. To go against the favoritism that's operating in us is the way of Jesus Christ here. So every time you go against this natural working of favoritism in our lives, you're going to feel it. You're, it's going to be uncomfortable. Whenever you decide that you are going to hang out with someone who is not like you or is not comfortable to hang around with, it's going to be felt. It's not going to be as enjoyable. So if I have person A who's like me and we've got a very similar um, place in life or similar perspective or similar sense of humor or whatever it might be, and I choose to hang out with person A, that will be the natural thing to do. But for me to instead choose person B, who maybe I know is going to um, have differing opinions and thoughts or isn't going to understand me as well, um, isn't going to be as fun or enjoyable to hang around with, for me to choose B over A, it's going to be felt. I'm going to like intentionally have to go into it going, this is not going to feel as good as the, the first example example. Um, not only will you feel it, but you have to intentionally choose it. You have to choose to care for or to go into hanging out with person B or, um, you know, giving them the time that you would like to be giving to person A. You have to intentionally choose that. You don't naturally choose it. Also, you will have to actually look for it. Because this favoritism and this comfort zone is always in operation for us, we can't just trust that we're going to make the decision that James is calling us to. Um, a lot of the times we don't even recognize that we make those decisions. We don't even recognize this favoritism operating in us. We're just making decisions. How am I going to spend my time? Who am I going to invest in? Who am I going to um, spend my time with? And we just kind of naturally go. So we can't trust ourselves and the natural working in our lives. We are going to feel it. We're going to have to intentionally choose it. And we actually are going to have to look for it because it's doesn't naturally show up in our sights. So why go against the natural bent of favoritism? Why would we ever choose it? Why would we ever decide to do something that doesn't feel as good or that we're going to have to choose it? We're going to have to make this intentional decision. We are even going to have to go out and look for it. Why would we ever do it? Well, here's a, here's a couple of reasons we find in this chapter. Because the uncomfortable person or the poor person in the situation um, is probably the one that is prepped 
to receive Christ or the one who's prepped to receive God's work in their lives. I mean, we find here in verse five, James says, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? What, what does he mean here? Does it mean only people without money are going to be saved or going to be able to receive Christ? No, it's not a money thing at all. What it is when he describes the person who is poor or in filthy clothes is the person who has come to the realization of their need. They feel their need for God. They're in a place in life where God has made very obvious to them that they um, need him. They are poor. And so here we find James saying, has God not chosen the poor or the one who feels their need um, is the one who is to be rich in faith, the one who's going to be the heir of the kingdom, the one who is ready to say yes to God's work in their life. Therefore, if we are as People who want to follow Christ more closely, we want to be led by the Holy Spirit, we want to be ready to work for Him, minister for Him, we ought to be looking for those who are feeling their need. Those who the Holy Spirit has prepped them for um, the message of Jesus Christ. That's who we seek out. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be as fun. We have to seek out these opportunities. But we as followers of Christ, people doing what Christ would do, we seek out the poor. We seek out the one who fills their need. That's why we do it. Here's another thing. Why do we um, reject favoritism? Because favoritism is a sin. We find James calling it a sin. Verse 9 says, But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Then James goes on to um, talk about how even the tiniest of sins makes us lawbreakers, makes us transgressors against God's law. And here's the thing. Favoritism doesn't feel like this obvious sin. It doesn't feel like maybe some of the big sins. It doesn't feel like you feel like when you've stolen something or if you've committed adultery or you have murdered someone. These are things you're going to walk away from that moment and you're going to feel Oh, I just sinned, right? These are the big things, and it's going to be very obvious. Here's the problem. With favoritism, we don't even feel it. We don't feel the sin. The, the, in fact, the sin feels very comfortable because we're just making choices, choosing that which is comfortable, that which works for us, that which feels better. And we don't even realize it's happened. And here we find James saying that if you break even the smallest of God's laws, you are a, um, it's like you've broken all of it. You are just as guilty as the one who's broken the biggest sin. And so here he's saying, all sin is breaking God's law. And here's one that is not going to be as obvious to you when it happens. Favoritism is a very concealable sin. No one really knows it's happening 
in our hearts most of the time. Um, We might be even in a church service and we find ourselves avoiding the person who God's nudging us to go talk to or care about, ask how they're doing, um, being ready to minister to their need. And we avoid it. We go this way. Oh, this person over here, we can talk about sports. We can talk about business. We can talk about life. We can talk about family and marriage and all this kind of stuff over here. This is the easy conversation. And yet the Holy Spirit is calling us over here to the more uncomfortable conversation. And and no one even knows that we committed this sin. No one sees it happen. No one notices it except for the Holy Spirit convicts you. You know that He was directing you to the poor one, the one who was prepped and ready by the Holy Spirit for God's work in their life. This is a great heart search going into the second half of James chapter 2. Here we have that God's looking at all these little decisions that we make and favoritism is so, um, so real. It happens all the time and yet it is sinful and we miss out on God's um, planned work, His Holy Spirit-inspired work. Um, and so now we're going to take a look at the second half of James chapter 2, and here we're going to find that genuine faith yields solid evidence. Genuine faith is going to yield solid evidence. In other words, you can't fake your faith. There's going to be solid evidence that it's there. So let's read here, um, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So here we find, you know, he's just kind of put a spotlight on the sin of favoritism which is so easy to miss and so easy to conceal and hide. And now he's going on to talk about how our faith, if we really have faith, then what's also going to be involved is the evidence of that faith seen through works. Now, I am the first to tell you, and I are, you know, I, I, I get so annoyed that Christianity has been reduced to works. You got to do this. You got to do that. We start trying to earn our way to heaven, and it's so destructive. But here we find James talking about how 
our genuine faith is going to have works associated with it. It kind of has to do with what comes first. Do the works come first or does the faith come first? Well, here's the thing. We don't earn favor with God by what we do, but when God's work comes into our lives, what happens is works comes flying out of it. Evidence of this faith in our lives becomes pretty obvious. It's really hard to add to James' words here, but here's a few things I want to bring out. Jesus, a couple times, probably a lot more than I've got listed here, a lot of times he talks about how if your faith is going to be real, there's going to be some hard evidence that come along with it. Um, in fact, I'm going to bring out two of them. One of them is in John chapter 14, and I'm going to read verses 12 and 15. It says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he also will do. And then verse 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So basically, Jesus is saying, if you are a person of faith, if you're one of my people, then if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. If you love me, works are going to follow. Works of righteousness are going to follow. If you love me, people are going to see some evidence of it. There's no such thing as some quiet faith or private faith or I do my faith in this way and it's no one else's business. No one else needs to know what's going on in my personal relationship with God. But Jesus says it doesn't work that way. If you love me, you're going to obey my commands. If you love me, you're going to be doing works of righteousness out of your life. It's going to naturally flow. We also find in John 13, verse 34 and 35, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, this is Jesus speaking, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also would love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here we find here that Jesus is saying the evidence of you being my people is if you love one another, if you're caring for one another, if you within the body of Christ, you within the family of faith are loving one another, taking care of one another's needs, um, speaking well of one another, protecting one another, protecting each other's reputation, calling each other out um, when one's kind of heading down the wrong direction. That's all loving one another and you are going to look different. People are going to see difference. They're going to know that you're my people because they see this work of righteousness, this work of love happening. Basically, if you're going to be my people, everyone's going to know it because this evidence is going to be there. And then, of course, we see Paul talking in Galatians chapter 5, very well-known passage of Scripture, the fruits of the Spirit. Basically, the, well, it says here, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These nine words, all of them are these evidence words. This is the evidence of the, the Spirit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit. How do I know that's an apple tree? Because the fruit of an apple is hanging on it. How do I know that's a pear tree? Because the fruit of a pear is hanging on it. We understand that what that tree is because of what we see coming out of it. And that's the true of the Christian life. You are going to be known as a follower of Christ because of Christ-like 
fruit coming out of your life. In this case, it's love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that will mark that you are in Christ and that the Holy Spirit is in you. So all this to say, um, James is saying here that your faith is nothing if there's no works that seem to be coming out of it. It's not that the works came first, but if you've got faith, work for Christ is going to be coming out of it. And it's going to start with whether or not you are loving the poor, the hurting, the one who the Holy Spirit has made obvious to them who, uh, who has the need. They are feeling their need. They're feeling that they need God's work in their life. And so if you want to be a fruitful Christian, if you want to see awesome things happen, look for the poor among you. Look for the hurting among you. Goes back to last week. Look for the orphan and the widow, the ones who know they have a need. It's probably the Holy Spirit that's already working on them. You say, I've never led anyone to Christ. Probably because you are allowing your favoritism to lead you to people who don't realize they have a need. That's the problem with the rich in this passage of Scripture, is they don't realize their need. They, they, everything is going fine in their life. They don't realize their need. But you follow Jesus very far, you will end up amongst the hurting and the poor that's the people that the Holy Spirit's already working on. That's the people that will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who realize their need. And you as a Christian, you as someone who's called by the name of Jesus Christ, will have the works of the Holy Spirit coming out of you in a very obvious way. And you will be loving the hurting among you. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would reveal to me the moments when favoritism is ruling my decisions. Lord, the times when the most comfortable route, the most appealing route is the one that guides my decision as to who I will invest in, who will I love, who I will go hang out with. And Lord God, I recognize that it's going to pretty much be the most uncomfortable um, situation that you likely are going to lead me into. It's going to be um, fighting against those natural favoritism choices where I'm going to find myself serving you, where the fruit's going to come, where the people's lives are going to be changed. And Lord, I pray for um, everyone listening here today, everyone who calls himself by the name of Jesus Christ, that we would be more ready to make a decision to serve the poor among us, uh, uh, that we would make that hard and uncomfortable decision more often than we do right now. Lord, to love the people that you're bringing into our pathway. Lord God, I pray that we would not uh, be guilty of the sin that when two people walk in and there's one who's like us and there's one who's not, there's one with obvious need and there's one who doesn't realize their need. God, help us to be ready to respond to the one who realizes their need, that we'll be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Lord God, let us not be guilty of the sin of favoritism this week and in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.
May God richly bless you as you follow Jesus Christ this week.